Dear congregation, the, the story continues in the book of Acts. And it's not so different than what we've had already, is it? More persecution. In this world, you shall have tribulation, said our Lord Jesus Christ. But fear not, I have overcome the world. Never was there a, a, a illustration of that truth uh, more live, uh, alive and colorful illustration of that truth than in this chapter. In this world you shall have tribulation. But fear not, I have overcome the world. Well, we have new persecution then. The first point on our outline there, new persecution. Notice this time that the persecution does not come from the Jewish religion this time, from the Jewish people, from the Sanhedrin, from any of the Jewish leadership. But now it comes from the Roman leadership. Herod, the king. Herod was a king, and his name was Herod Agrippa. And he was actually a very well-loved uh, uh, Roman ruler. I know that may seem hard to believe, but many people even say that Herod was a proselyte, that he had actually converted to the Jewish religion. He was so punctilious and so faithful in his observance of Jewish ceremonies that some people, not everyone, but some people believe that he actually had become a Jew himself. Now, it seems more likely that he, he sort of became a Jew, right? in order to curry favor with the Jewish people. But so, so religiously uh, precise was he in his observance of the Jewish ceremonies, he even went to the synagogues uh, and, and such, that, uh, that the Jewish people actually much, much li liked him much better than, than many of the other Roman rulers. Now Herod, uh, obviously you can see something of that spirit in this chapter, right? Because when he realizes uh, that he can curry more favor with the Jewish people by starting to stamp out this new uh, uh, th this sect or this new belief, right? This new religion that seems to be rising up, the Christianity, right? People who believe in Christ. When he realizes that he can gain more favor with the Jewish people by uh, putting some pressure on them, he doesn't miss the opportunity. So he laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And that went well for him. The Jewish people were pleased. So then he, he takes it up a notch, right? And he arrests James. Now, uh, last week, was it? maybe it was two weeks ago now, remember we, we talked about James. James is such a common uh, name for people in those days that you always have to sort out which James is being spoken of. Now, this James would be James, the son of Zebedee. In other words, James, whenever you read in the gospel about Peter, James, and John, well, this, that's the James that's being talked about here. This is James, the son of Zebedee. So you see that now, now Herod is going for the, you might say, the, 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 the top leadership, right? The, the big men in the, in the organization, the important men. And so he arrests James, the son of Zebedee, again, one of the 12 disciples, one of the apostles, and he immediately puts him to death with the sword. And then verse 3, when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Well, that went well for him. This is, the, the Jews are, are, are very pleased so now he goes for the top guy, Peter, right? Peter was the spokesman for the apostles. In all the previous chapters in the book of Acts, whenever the apostles got into trouble, it was always Peter who stepped up. So now James goes for the top guy. Now let's go back and think about Peter. Remember, Peter was in Jerusalem, but when the persecution began, Peter also, uh, um, I'm sorry, many of the Christians fled. And when some of them got to these cities, in, in various places, you'll remember that uh, Philip ended up in Samaria. 
and remember all the good that he was able to do preaching the gospel in Samaria, well then, the apostles sent Peter and John to Samaria. So Peter left Jerusalem. Remember then he had the experience at Simon's house, the tanner, and then at Cornelius' house, but then he returned to Jerusalem. Remember, when he returned to Jerusalem, he had quite a lot of explaining to do. Peter, what are you doing eating and drinking with Gentile with Gentiles? You know we're not supposed to do that. And Peter explains to their satisfaction what he was doing. Well, now Peter is in Jerusalem. So now Herod has the opportunity to seize Peter as well, and he does so. So he takes Peter. Now, understand that Herod has no complaint against the Christians. Right? You understand that. Herod had no issue with the Christian people. It's not like the Christians were being insurrectionists or breaking the law or being particularly obnoxious, right? Herod's goal was just to gain favor with the Jewish leadership. He was just arresting Christians because that furthered that agenda of his. So then we come to James. James is captured and he is killed. Now, it seems strange to us that, that uh, Luke would just write so quickly. Like, look at that. It's just in verse 3, just a couple lines. Uh, sorry, in verse 2. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. Why doesn't Luke say so much more about that? I mean, James was an important person. I mean, you, you, when you think of how much a space Luke gave to Stephen in the book of Acts, a whole chapter, a couple chapters, actually. But James, a far more important person than, than Stephen, is just a verse. Well, here you see Luke's purpose in writing the book of Acts. And remember, let me take you back to Acts 1, verse 8. Remember that the gospel, Jesus says, you will take the gospel to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. Right? And we saw in Jerusalem, we saw the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God came down upon the church. Because of the persecution, they fled to Judea. Philip went to Samaria. And now the gospel is going to go to the ends of the earth. That is Luke's goal with the book of Acts. Now, was James a very important person? Yes, he was. Far more important than Stephen. But for Luke's purpose, Stephen is the most important person, is the more important person, because Stephen is the forerunner of the Apostle Paul. Stephen, you might say, paved the way for Paul. Now, Stephen ended in death, just like John the Baptist, who paved the way for Christ was killed in prison. So Stephen was also stoned to death. He was killed. But again, out of the, out of the, uh, how do I say this? Out of the grave of, of Stephen, as it were, came the Apostle Paul. And Stephen's death brought the Apostle Paul to the forefront. So again, you see Luke's purpose. So I just want to draw your attention to that and how, how briefly he highlights the death of James. Now, Another thing that we can say about James, and again, if, this time if you would take your Bible, and if you would turn with me to Mark 10 and verse 35, and read this with me. Mark 10 and verse 35. I'd like to read to you, uh, we, we get a little window, as it were, into the mind of James in Mark 10 and verse 35. Mark 10 and verse 35, where we read, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant that we may sit, one on your right and one on your left, in your glory. 
But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Well, there you see something of the foolishness, don't you, of James and John, who so naively say, yes, we can drink the cup that you drink. Yes, we can be baptized with the baptism that you'll be baptized with. And so then Jesus agrees. He says, well, then you shall be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. And of course, this is referring to the baptism of suffering, the baptism of death that would overwhelm Jesus in such a, in such a terrible way when the sins uh, when our sins pressed down upon him on the cross and, and, and brought his life to an end. And now God says to James and John, yes, with something of that baptism, you will be baptized. And that cup that I have to drink, you also will drink from it. And then we have verse 2. Herod arrests James and puts him to death with the sword. So James came to experience that baptism, didn't he? Certainly nothing like what Jesus had to experience. I shouldn't say nothing like it, but very different. Jesus' baptism, but something of it. James also came to taste in his own way. That that day when he was taken out of the prison cell and he was executed, beheaded by Herod, he came to know the baptism. That undoubtedly was not the baptism that he was seeking. Undoubtedly not the cup that, from which he was hoping to drink. But still, James came to experience that baptism. Well, then I come to my third point. So then Peter is arrested. And then we have this fantastic story of Peter getting arrested. I mean, we love to read this story. Uh, what, a, what a miracle this was. And Peter himself, of course, is just completely unaware. Uh, he, he thinks he's dreaming. He's seeing a vision of some kind. And I think it's okay to say that there's even a little humor in this story, right? You just, you just can't imagine that when, that when this angel came down into the cell and this blaze of light and glory fills the cell, that the guards were just oblivious to it. Some people think that perhaps the guards were sleeping, but I, I, can't, I can't believe that at all. Remember, the, the life of these guards depended on their being alert. So they were not sleeping. In, in some strange, mysterious way, God had taken out of their minds this idea that they were to make sure that Peter did not escape the cell. And so when this blaze of light and glory comes, and they see it, they see the chains, they hear the chains fall off in a clatter onto the floor, and Peter is standing there free, he gets dressed, he puts his coat on, he puts his sandals on, and he begins to walk out. The guards stand there, and again, you can't help but smile a little bit, there they stand, as helpless as children, to stop Peter from leaving the prison. And it continues. Verse 10, they had passed the first guard. I mean, you almost wonder, don't you, did, did like Peter look at those guards and like, I mean, I can imagine his mouth was just wide open thinking, there's nobody going to make a move to stop me. And, and nobody at the first guard. And then they come to the second guard. And once again, it's as if the guards stepped by. I mean, have a good day, Peter. What? I mean, what did they say? What were they thinking? 
But again, God had so engineered their minds that they, that they for whatever reason, made no attempt to stop Peter. Furthermore, my friends, notice how the text highlights the fact that there was no human possibility of escape. You can see that in verse 6. Herod had arrested him, and Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. And, and uh, well, we read uh, previous in verse 4, that Herod had given four squads of soldiers. The word in the Greek is quaternion, which you can hear, quaternion, quad, right? It's, there's four squads of four soldiers each. And so we know that Peter is sleeping between two soldiers. There's one soldier on either side of him, and he's chained to both soldiers. You understand? Peter is chained to two soldiers, one on his right, one on his left. The other two soldiers are standing at the door. Furthermore, these soldiers are not sleeping because there's four squads. So in other words, one watch of the night would go to the first squad, then they would leave, and another squad would take over. Then they would leave, and another squad would take over. So these are alert men, right? They're well-rested, and they're tied to Peter. There is no human possibility of escape. But of course, man's extremity is God's opportunity. And Peter does escape. He walks through the prison. He walks out the door. And can you imagine? And also, uh, many uh, scholars believe that since this was in Jerusalem, and since Herod was taking such pains to prevent Peter's escape, that Herod had put Peter in the, in the fortress of Antonia, the most secure fortress in the city of Jerusalem. And, and when it says in verse, uh, in verse 10, when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate. Again, assuming this is the, the fortress of Antonia, that would be the last gate separating Peter from the outside world. And that gate was so heavy that one person could not open it by himself. It took a number of men to swing that gate open. But when Peter and the angel stand before it, can you believe it? There that gate, that huge iron gate begins to creak and to crack as it swings open. And Peter walks out in astonishment, realizing he's a free man. Well, we read at the end of, uh, that when Peter uh, returns to the house of, of uh, where this servant girl Rhoda opens and, and they're all rejoicing in his return, that Peter says at the end of verse 17, report these things to James and the brethren. <clears throat> there you have another James. So this now is James, the author of the letter in the New Testament. James, the brother of Jesus. And you can see that Peter singles him out. That already at this time in the life of the church, James, the brother of Jesus, though not an apostle, he was not one of the twelve disciples. He had become an apostle, you might say, because of his great influence and piety in the church and his wisdom. So that James is now singled out by Peter. Be sure you tell James and the other brethren about these things. Well, my friends, that's the story as we're given it here. This morning, I would like to focus the application, especially on the fact of prayer. The fact of prayer. You see in verse 5, this actually is the text of the sermon. So Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. Then you also read that when Peter returns in verse 12, to the house of Mary, the mother of John, where many were gathered together and were praying. The power of prayer is my first point of application. The power of prayer. And I put that quote from Matthew Henry there 
For prayers and tears are the church's arms, or you might say weapons. Therewith she fights, not only against her enemies, but for her friends. And to these means they have recourse. Prayer and tears are the church's weapons. And it's something we often talk about, isn't it? The power of prayer. We confess in James 1. We read in James in James 5, verse 16, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. It's something that we believe with our minds, isn't it? It's something we, we say very readily with our tongue, right? Prayer is so powerful. Prayer accomplish, accomplishes so much for us. But my friends, let me ask you, let me appeal to your own experience now and to your own heart. It's something that we really question, isn't it? Maybe you wouldn't say it to me. It might not be something you would say to a pastor, right? But in our own hearts, there's kind of what we believe with our heads, right? And doctrinally, we've always been taught that prayer is a powerful thing. But in the experience of our own life, we can begin to question it. In fact, reading an account like this, how many of us don't kind of sigh almost? It worked out good for Peter, didn't it? It worked out good for the church at that time. But why doesn't God intervene like that in my situation? I have situations in my life too. But the prison doors don't swing open for me. The chains don't just fall off my hands like they did for Peter. Doesn't, isn't God all-powerful? Again, it's something we confess with our mouth, isn't it? But to believe it in our, in our, in, in our heart and to, and to live out of that reality in our life of faith day by day. Isn't God infinitely loving and good to his people? Well, if he's, if he's powerful and he, he, he's omnipotent, as we confess, and he loves his people, then why don't the prison doors of my situation swing open? Why don't the chains fall from my arms in my situation? Why are my prayers seemingly fruitless? They don't, they don't accomplish anything. Furthermore, didn't Jesus tell us to call him father and yet again I call God father but he doesn't intervene in my life he doesn't intervene in my situation I'm still in the prison my hands are still bound again whatever the situation may be there's what we confess on the one hand so glibly and maybe even rather tritely that yes prayer there's the power of prayer. And God is so good. And then there's my life. Then there's my situation. God doesn't intervene. I read a chapter like this, and I think, wow, that worked out good for the church at that time. But God doesn't work that way anymore. Maybe prayer isn't effective, as effective as it once was. And you know, as I pondered this thought this week, my friends, it brought me back to our communion meditation last week, where we focused on waiting on God. Waiting on God. And I want to go back there this morning. That's my second point of application. 
the first application, I just want to set that up, that, that dilemma in our life, that disconnect between what we kind of believe with our minds and what we see in our own life. I want that to lead us then to this second point of waiting on God. And I, I, I thought hard about that this week. And I see three different aspects to this waiting on God. I, I want to take this idea of waiting on God and I, I really, my friends, I really hope, congregation, that we can think hard about this in the weeks to come. What does it mean to wait on God? Let that be the subject of our meditation and our thoughts this week. Waiting on God. Now, in the first place, waiting on God implies a less than ideal situation. And I choose those words carefully. A less than ideal situation. It may be a very painful situation. It may be a situation that isn't so painful. But still, it's less than ideal it's not what we hoped for. It's not what we would want for ourselves. We would change things if we were in charge. It implies a less than ideal situation. It implies that we've not yet arrived at where we want to be. We're still looking for something. Waiting on God, right? There's that idea that there's something for which we are still looking. Waiting on God. So that in the first place. Secondly... Secondly, waiting on God implies that there is this, there is this uh, confidence in our own soul that the resolution to that first, that first point is in God alone. That the only way that this less than ideal situation can be resolved, that God holds that key. God holds that solution in his hands. And there's nothing, there's no one else who can do it. So in the first place, a less than an ideal situation. In the second place, a confidence that the resolution to this issue, whatever it may be, is in God alone. Then in the third place, in the third place, and, and this is very similar to the first one, but I, I want to say it this way, in the third place, that there, are, that there are circumstances in my situation which lead me to the opposite conclusion. The opposite conclusion of number two, that the resolution to my issue is in God alone. There are circumstances in my life. There are things that happen, which when I reflect on them, I think to myself, I'm not so sure that God cares about me. I'm not so sure that this problem really, or that God even is, is concerned to resolve this issue for me, or that he will resolve this issue for me. Those three things are involved in waiting on God. A less than ideal situation. A confidence that only God can resolve this issue. And third, situations, circumstances, events, experiences that seem to argue that God does not care. Three things involved in waiting on God. I think about David fleeing from Saul. In the back of David's mind, he has this promise that one day he will be king. And yet there he is, wandering about the deserts and the rocky, desolate places of, of En Gedi by the Dead Sea, being chased from place to place. Here's a less than ideal situation. And here's all these reasons coming to David, leading David to say, I will one day perish by the hand of Saul. And God's promise, I'm not so sure that it really means anything. It's horrible to think, isn't it? With our heads and our minds, we don't want to say it. 
But with our hearts, we, we cry out to God sometimes, don't we? And then we see Peter. We come to the prison, and we see Peter. You want to talk about a less-than-ideal situation? James has just been beheaded. Peter's in prison. He's tied to two soldiers. And what is he doing, children? I think on the children's notes, it says something about that today, doesn't it? What was Peter doing? He's fast asleep. Peter has such a confidence. Again, think about number two in, this, in, in my list there, those three things. Peter has such a confidence that God can resolve the situation that he's fast asleep, being tied to two soldiers and knowing with near certainty that he's going to be executed as soon as the Passover feast passes and all the people go home, Herod's going to haul him out and he's going to be executed. Don't forget, my friends, that Peter was the man who wrote, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Peter knew that by experience, didn't he? What it means to wait on God. And you know, my friends, waiting on God, that's different than waiting for God. I want to distinguish between those two this morning. When we wait for God, we may have something that we're waiting for God, we're praying for, it, and we're looking and expecting and hoping that God will grant us the thing that we ask for. And so we're waiting for God. My prayer this morning, my friends, is that waiting for God would lead us more and more to wait on God. Because waiting on God is a lifelong thing. If I had to give a definition there, as I, I put a space for that on the outline, a definition, waiting on God means praying, trusting, hoping, even in the face of evidence to the contrary. Even when there are things in our life which lead us to the other conclusion. And then I have that picture there, my friends. I found that picture online this week, and I so love that picture. And I've preached about that before here in this pulpit. But that is the woman standing on the shore of the North Sea. You see her there, her skirts are billowing out because it's always windy in the, in the North Sea. The North Sea is very stormy, tempestuous sea. And what's she doing? She's looking out over the North Sea. You know, sometimes a picture is worth a thousand words. That picture is so meaningful to me, and I hope to you, because she's looking for the return of her husband. She's looking for the return of her sons, returning from their fishing trips on the North Sea. And they didn't arrive on time. They didn't come in when they were supposed to. And now she stands on the North Sea. She's looking. She's looking for that white sail to appear on the horizon. And she looks, and she looks, and she looks. And my friends, I see in that statue a picture of the Christian life. I see a picture of a person waiting. Waiting, in the, in the case of the Christians, waiting on God. Looking and expecting that God will do what appears impossible. Peter is such a beautiful example of that. He's sleeping. And he's humbly, confidently waiting on God. 
It's why the patriarchs lived in tents. Again, I'd like to read to you from Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, my friends, this is Hebrews chapter 11. This is the life of faith. Hebrews 11 and verse 8, By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed, by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking, listen now, for he was looking, just like that woman, for he was looking for the city which has foundations. That's why he lived in tents, because he wasn't going to put down, build a, a regular house, a permanent house, because he was still looking. He was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And it continues down in verse 13. Then we are told this, all these, and again, all the people that the, uh, that the author mentioned previously, all these died in faith. But listen, my friends, all these died in faith without receiving the promises. They did not receive the thing that God had promised them. Now, eventually they would receive the thing that God promised them. You can be sure of that because God's promises never fail. But they left this life not having received the thing that God had promised them, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. This is the waiting people, my friends, that I want to bring to your attention this morning. This waiting on God. For those, says the author, for those who say such things, make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. This, my friends, is, the, is, the, is what it means to wait on God. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob live in tents. Why? Because they've not yet received the thing that God had promised them. And they wait and they trust. And sometimes they even die not having received the promise. My friends, that leads me to, to this conclusion then. And if on your, on your notes you want to add under application to the conclusion, my conclusion is this. That for God, in his infinite wisdom, sees it better sometimes that we have a need for him than that we actually receive the thing that we're praying for or receive the thing that we desire. Do you understand what I'm saying this evening or this morning? That for God, he may, in his infinite wisdom, see it better that we focus on number two in that list of three things. Our confidence that God will resolve whatever the issue we are in. God, as the great physician, may see it better for his people to have that confidence deepened and strengthened than to give us the thing that we're asking for. And in that sense, the patriarchs could have died without having received the thing promised. Why? Because they rejoiced. They rejoiced in the promise. 
They rejoiced in trusting in God, that God was going to resolve these things perfectly. And God sees more for that, more benefit to that than anything else. My friends, I must close. But I want to also point out in Luke 22 and verse 44 that there's another story here. And that is when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he prayed. And you'll notice there on the outline, it says he prayed very fervently. That is the same word, my friends, that we have in this text when it says that the people in prayer prayed fervently. It is the same word. But Jesus did not get what he asked for. Jesus still went to the cross. He was still crucified. As a testimony, as an example for us, my friends, that we too need to continue in waiting on God. May God bless these words to us, my friends. Let us pray. Lord, we come before you this morning thinking about this, this truth of what it means to wait upon you. Lord, we have all the patriarchs who went before us living in tents, teaching us that we are to wait upon you, even when we do not receive the thing that we ask for. And we have our Lord Jesus Christ himself, who also prayed, and even prayed fervently. And yet he did not receive the thing he asked for. The cup was not taken from him, but he had to drink it, and he had to drink it all. Lord, help us to be faithful and persevering then in this life, and to wait on you, even when there are all circumstances to the contrary. Help us to wait and to wait on, to know, O Lord, that your promises never fail. Lord, help us then to have that confidence in you as our Heavenly Father, and never to turn to the left or to the right. Hear our prayer, Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's turn then to the 102. One hundred and two. Let's sing all the verses of one hundred and two. O God, give thou ear to my plea, and hide not thyself from my cry. O hearken and answer thou me, as restless and weary I sigh. This is the, the psalm, the song of one who is waiting on God. Let's sing all the verses of number one hundred and two in the blue hymnal.
receive the blessing of the Lord and go in peace, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.